We are in, the, uh, in our study of the book of Acts. We are really near the end. So if you're, we're going to be in the Bible today. If you need a Bible, we've got hard copies at the back. I love following through a sermon with a hard copy Bible because I can see it there. Um, there are no notifications. The only notification is the Holy Spirit prompting me uh, to remember things, you know. Um, and there's no distractions. I love my, my, my hard copy Bible. You can pick up a copy. Uh, not to bring home, uh, you want to bring home, let us know. Uh, <laughs> but you can pick up a copy uh, for use here in the service at the back, right? Um, no problems. Just get up and go and walk. That's totally fine. We are on the penultimate sermon on the book of Acts. Uh, second last. I became also a full-grown adult before I discovered what the word penultimate means. I read it all the time. I never knew what it means. It means second last. Today we're on the second last uh, sermon from a study in the book of Acts. Um, I've entitled today's sermon, Trial and Terror. Right? Trial and Terror. Because... Paul, Paul goes through, today's sermon is, is quite crazy yeah, because we're going to cover a lot of ground. You may not be used to this, but today, I may not be used to this. Okay? We're going to cover six chapters of Bible. Yeah, one of my cell leaders just popped his head up go like, Right. Um, six chapters of Bible, two years in the life of Paul, five trials and two cities, right? So Paul is going to go on this incredible journey. Now you may be thinking, Pastor Fergus, why you, why you arrange until like that? <laughs> the reason is, um, it's the ending of the book of Acts. A lot is going on. It's very repetitive. And strictly speaking, I could preach this in six different sermons, but you will be bored stiff of Paul standing before different judges and different courts and pretty much uh, uh, saying similar things one day after another after another. So today is a day to zoom out. Okay, Some weeks, we zoom all the way in, we look at the Word, we break down the Bible, we look at the way the, the, the words behave, how the sentence is constructed. But today, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to zoom quite a lot out until we can see six full chapters. I'm going to show you visually what those six chapters are like. Acts chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 look like this, okay? Now, you don't have to read it, okay? You don't have to read it. Acts chapter 21, stuff happens, okay? <laughs> all, all you need to know for now is stuff happens. Acts chapter 22, marked in blue, is Paul's first trial, okay? It's his first trial. And then in red, the trial gets adjourned, Okay? And this pattern will repeat itself five times. Stuff happens. And then Paul shows up for trial. He defends himself. Some crazy thing happens. And then the trial gets adjourned. Round two. Stuff happens. Chapter 23. His trial. The trial gets adjourned. And then more stuff happens. Chapter 24 is his third trial. And then it gets adjourned one more time. Okay? End of chapter 24, pushing to the start of 25, more stuff happens. Trial number 4, it gets adjourned, more stuff happens. Chapter 26, his final trial, and then finally, the whole thing gets truncated, and then he's sent off to Rome. Okay? And then we'll pick up on his journey to Rome next week in the final installment from the study of Acts. Now, 
last week. If those of you guys who were here last week, you would have heard me share that Paul was so ready to go to Rome, right? He was so ready to go to Rome in chains because when he gets to Rome, then the gospel can spread in Rome, right? And how else is he going to get a ticket to go to Rome? By going in chains. Because he can't just anyhow get a ticket to go to Rome, right? So he's going to go to Rome in chains, okay? But you know what? I realized that last week I short-circuited the story just a little bit. You know, I, maybe I gave you the ending and today I want to show you the Jalan Kerja that takes you all the way to that ending. So today is the Jalan Kerja. When we begin Acts chapter 21-22, Paul does not, he's not fully convinced that Rome is the end point yet. It is God who is going to reveal that to him. Now, I showed you this visually in chapters. I'm going to show you this. This is summary of the six chapters, okay? You read it straight down like this, okay? So, okay, la, help you lah. Stuff happens. <laughs> Paul goes to trial. Trial gets adjourned. Five times it repeats, okay? Five times it repeats. Now, in the first time, this is a very brief summary of the six chapters, okay? Paul goes to Jerusalem, right? He meets up. By the way, if you have been following the book of Acts and you, and you remember the first half of this year, there was an evangelist called Philip. He's the guy who chased after the caravan, uh, the, the chariot, met the Ethiopian eunuch, shared the gospel with him, you know, and then got airlifted him, dropped him somewhere else. That Philip makes a cameo appearance here. Right near the end of Acts, Philip shows up again. In fact, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he bunks in with Philip, you know, who is now married and has four daughters who are all prophetesses as well, okay? And they are hosting a visiting prophet called Agabus. Now, this guy, Agabus, he finds a belt in the house. Like he, Paul is there, right? Philip, the host, is there with his family. Agabus finds a belt, ties the belt around his hands, and then he makes this prophecy and he says that, Whoever's belt this is, this is what will happen to them here in Jerusalem. When you go to Jerusalem, actually they are a little off Jerusalem, right? And that's Paul's belt, lah, okay? So, so there's a prophecy by Agabus about what's going to happen to Paul. And then Paul goes to Jerusalem, okay? Uh, an angry mob shows up. Angry mobs always show up, right? He gets arrested. He has his first trial before the Roman tribune and the Jewish crowd. And then the whole trial is adjourned because of a mini riot that breaks out with that Jewish crowd. That's round number one. Round number two, okay? The tribune dismisses all the crowd and keeps only the Sanhedrin, right? The, council, the Jewish council, planning to have a trial for Paul, retrial him, right? Uh, in front of the Sanhedrin, right? So uh, there is a little incident where they slap Paul in the mouth and then Paul mouths off back at them. You know, it's quite, it, it, it's quite a bit of an exchange, but I won't go deep into that. Trial number two before the Sanhedrin. Paul, you know, says a few things and among them, they start fighting. So it was adjourned a second time because of riots happening between them fighting each other. Round three, right? That night, Paul spends his night in the barracks, right? Paul, God visits Paul in the night. 
okay, or rather the next night, God visits him and gives him an encouragement for what's going to happen in the days to come. Meanwhile, outside the barracks, a plot is brewing to murder, to assassinate Paul, okay? I'll tell you more about that plot later. But the plot fails, so I give it away. The plot fails and they end up in Caesarea Philippi. Colour change, huh? okay? The rest of it is Caesarea Philippi, okay? Uh, they end up in another city where Paul gets tried before the Roman governor called Felix. There are two governors, okay? The first one is called Felix. After this, the trial, it gets adjourned because Felix decides, hey, you know what? Now, Felix is kind of like a straight-laced, not, not super straight-laced, but corrupt Roman governor, okay? Corrupt Roman official. Uh, and what he does is he, uh, he adjourns the trial, he stops it, and then he says to Paul personally, I'm going to have private chats with you, yeah, to know more about your faith, okay? So, so the, the whole trial ends, and then for two years, he keeps summoning Paul to come before him to, so that Paul can share the gospel with him. But actually what Felix was looking for in the whole two years, he's looking for a bribe, right? He's looking for an under-table uh, 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 gift so that Felix will release him, right? But Paul's not going to bribe his way out of chains, okay? Uh, wrong guy to get a bribe from. So after two years, and Paul, can you imagine it's you? And you're like, sharing the gospel. Oh, got another chance to share gospel. Got another chance to share gospel. The whole time, that stupid fleur only is dragging the whole thing out. Not because he wants to hear the gospel. Because he wants your duet copy only. And then he'll release you. The whole time. But you still faithfully share the gospel. That's our Paul, right? After two years, so-called rotting away in prison, okay? Doing this. But he's not rotting away. He's, he's full of life, right? Uh, F Felix is replaced by a new governor. The new governor is Festus, okay? Yeah, talk about Festus in, in prison. Now, he has a trial before Festus. Festus is like a, he's a bit, he's a bit of a slime ball. He's a bit of a lalang, no backbone, kind of like just trying to carry favour with, with, with the people around him. So the moment he comes into office, the Jewish uh, uh, elite come to him. They're, they're in Caesarea Philippi. Uh. He, they go to him. They like, oh, Festus, uh, 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 YB, you know, um, this is what you can do for us. Let's do, retry Paul. After two years already, the guy is sitting there. Let's dig up his case again, bring him to Jerusalem, and then we try him in Jerusalem. So Festus, new to the job, you know, wanting to, to do this. And he says, no, 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 no. Let's try him here in Philippi, in Caesarea Philippi. So they try him in Caesarea Philippi. Halfway through the trial, Festus changes his mind because he wants the favour of this Jewish crowd. He suddenly changes and says, hey, you know what? You know what? Let's stop this trial. And let's go to Jerusalem and let's restart this trial in Jerusalem. Paul seizes this opportunity and he says, this is, a f this is nonsense. I'm already standing before Caesar's court. You want to drag me out of here to go to a, like a lower court, right? Uh, to a local provincial court to do this? No. And Paul takes the opportunity. He says, I appeal to Caesar. And through that appeal to Caesar, Festus says, okay, lo. You appeal to Caesar, then I have to send you to Caesar, Lord. But I say that Festus is a bit of an inexperienced slime ball because he doesn't really even have anything to write on the chart sheet. You want to send someone to Caesar, you don't have anything to write on the chart sheet. You're like, Caesar's going to be like, 
what useless, you know, what useless governor are you? You send me a, a, a criminal to trial for an appeals case. Rodney, you've got appeals case, you've got to have like all the supporting documents, right? This guy is being sent before his big, big boss. No supporting documents, you know. So, Festus also panicked. He's like, how am I going to, what am I going to write so that as a letter, so I can send this guy to Rome with? He says, let me call on some Jewish authority support. So in those days, Rome, Roman officials control everything. And then they have kind of like pseudo-Jewish kings who kind of like puppet kings. They think they've got power, but they don't really have power. Okay? And that's that's Agrippa, King Agrippa from the Herodian family, okay? They're from part of the whole Herod family, okay? That's King Agrippa. He with his wife Bernice joined Festus. Festus invites them, say, come, come, come. Help me listen to this guy so that you can help me know what to write on the chart sheet. Because if I don't have anything to write on the chart sheet, I'm in trouble. I'm giving this guy appeal to Caesar, but I don't know what to write. So Paul has his fifth and final trial in the book of Acts before Agrippa, you know, and then at the end of it, Agrippa tells tells uh, 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 Festus, "Why oh, you bring me here for this? This guy actually done did nothing wrong. Actually, this man could have been set free if he didn't appeal to Caesar." But since he appealed to Caesar, there's a legal you know, obligation to send him to Caesar already. So it ends like that. Okay? So you all get the picture? There were six chapters of Bible. Huh? Okay? So if you can go home, you got some time, you got an audio Bible, you put it to run, you listen to it or you read, you, know, you will get all the details and all the flavours. Today is just preaching, right? I'm going to move quick now. I want to show you today that in the teaching that the disciples have received, they were already prepared for opposition. In the teaching that the disciples have long received from Jesus Himself, they are already prepared for opposition, oppression, right? I also want to show you that in the trouble that they face, Jesus is the one who makes the first move. He makes the overture. He makes the move and takes the initiative to reach out to Paul in his trouble. And I also want to show you that in every single trial, Paul is always looking out for an opportunity. He's always looking out for opportunities to see how he can, he, he, can, he can talk, how he can share, how he can do something. You know, he's not passive. He's not just sitting back. You know, so we're going to see all these one by one. I think I'm going to do this first, then this, and I'm going to end on the middle one. Okay, so I'm just going to change the sequence of what I'm doing a little bit. In the teaching they've received, they've already been prepared for opposition. You've seen across the book of Acts how in every city, Paul gets into trouble. There are either riots, there are arrests, there's attempted stonings, attempted killings. On one occasion, they deified them, you know, and like started bringing out sacrifices thinking they were gods. And when they realized that they weren't, they, start, they tried to kill them all over again, you know. This happened from place to place. But guess what? None of this should be surprising. None of this is surprising to those who are the believers of the first century. Why? Because they remembered the words of Jesus. Words of Jesus that sounded like this. John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hates you. It hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than a master. So if they persecuted me, they will also 
persecute you. Now let that rest. Let that sink in. Because these words, though they are 2,000 years old, they are not expired words. These words are true for every Christian for all time. Now I need you to let that sink in because these are not easy words to swallow. Jesus says, preparing men like Peter and, and, and James, preparing men later like Paul, and then preparing women and men like all of you here today. So these are words for you. If the world hates you for your Christianness, for your faith, if the world hates you, know that the world hated Jesus before they hated you. And if they're going to persecute him, they will gladly, easily persecute you. Now, you want to make one little proviso. We always joke about this, you know. Um, if people hate you, make sure they hate you because of your anointing, not because you're annoying, okay? okay? <laughs> Christians, please don't be annoying, okay? Christians, please don't be, be, be offensive for the sake of it. Okay? Jesus doesn't tell you to go out there and just purposely start offending people. One, okay? He tells you to go out there and love. And then speak the truth in love. And if the truth must be spoken, it should be spoken covered and dripping and fully you know, soaked in love. And then if you speak the truth in love and that truth becomes unpalatable, in spite of how much you love and people hate you for it, don't worry. They hated Jesus, even though he himself also spoke the truth in love. Amen? Amen? So please don't go and become a, an, a, a, a persecution magnet because you're, you're just mean and unpleasant Christian. Right? That does not bring God, God glory, okay? okay? Bring God glory by loving other people. But I'm going to ask you this question. We say we want to be Christ-like, right? We say we want to grow in the likeness of our Saviour. And we do. How many of you work, do want to grow in, in Christ-likeness? Yes? You don't even have to raise your hands. I know you want to be Christ-like. Right? The Bible says that we see as like a poor reflection in a mirror now, but one day we shall see face to face. Meaning that today our image, our reflection of God is half-baked, but slowly every day, we are being refined and going from glory to glory. One day, we shall see face to face. We shall look at God, stand before God, and then when you see your own reflection, you see Christ-likeness beaming back to you. And when you see each other, you see the image of God restored in each other. My question for you is, how far would you go to be Christ-like? Because to be fully Christ-like, Christ as He was on earth, Christ as He lived for some 30 to 33 years, Christ as He was a historical human being, suffered. How far would you go to be Christ-like? Christ sacrificed Himself for truth, for love, for people who hated Him. How far would you go to be Christ-like? Where would you stop beyond which you say, this is as far as I'll go? in this call to be Christ-like. Beyond this, Jesus, you're on your own. I can't do this anymore. This is not for me. How far would you go? To apologize? To seek forgiveness? To repent? To let go of things in your life? Habits? 
cultures, lifestyles, sins, just bad, bad things about the way you are, the way you think, the way you speak, how far would you go? Because I can tell you this, if, you, if the call over your life is to be Christ-like and God has spoken over us that oppression, that opposition, that resistance lies ahead of all those who seek to be Christ-like, then do not fear because He's already prepared you for it. But the journey of the Christian is, the, is one that is, that, that includes, the journey of the Christian includes the journey of suffering, the potential for persecution, and the reality that opposition will be there. Now, I want to say this, okay? In John chapter 15, I don't think this is John, yeah, John chapter 15, Verse 1, it says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from... John 16. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then when you hear this, I want you to hear Paul. Jesus says to his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogues. Have they? Yes, they have. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, people try to kill Paul. I can tell you, the people who try to kill Paul genuinely believe sincerely with all their hearts fully sure that they are doing a service to God. But they are wrong. Why are they wrong? They did not know the Father's heart. They don't actually know the Father. They know someone else. Someone else, they think their Father is someone else. They think their Father is like something else. And then they try to please that Father. But that is not God. And in trying to please that someone, something else, uh, vengeful, bloodthirsty, someone else, they kill the enemies of their God, thinking they are doing a service to God. And Jesus says, you do that. You show, you prove to the whole world that you don't know me. You don't know my heart. You don't know God's heart. If you go around trying to kill my enemies, you don't know my heart because my heart says vengeance belongs to me. I will deal with vengeance. I will deal with my enemies. You love people. I deal with enemies. That's how I work, says the Lord. Now, they're going to try to plot to kill Paul. Here. Fully convicted that this is out of their zeal, out of their, their loyalty to Yahweh, they are going to kill this man who is doing all these weird things and disturbing, you know, the existing social mores, right? And they are wrong. I'm going to ask you, today, there are wars, not just one maybe, where people are killing each other in the name of God. 
How have you been responding to this? I'm asking you not as a political animal how you respond. I'm asking you as a Christian. That's your first identity. As a child of Christ. As a child of the Father who just said this. How are you responding to this? Because I can tell you, it grieves me. It breaks my heart to hear Christians, even Christians in leadership, say things like, if it was me, I will bomb them to smithereens. It grieves my heart. Because I'm scared they don't know the Father. I'm scared that if other people hear this, if other Christians all start to have value system like that, then he's saying, do you know your father? Do you know your father's heart? Now, the reason why this is important is because you and I, we are called by Christ to build the church, to disciple people, to love others well. Christ has not called us to be political commentators, at least not first. He has not called us to throw political allegiance before we throw our godly allegiance. Our God allegiance comes first. Allegiance in our loyalty to the ways of Christ comes first. Allegiance to the family of rescued sinners, Christians, the church, in the Middle East or anywhere else, comes next. Our political ideas does not feature in the top places of God's heart. Vengeance is the Lord's. And He has called on us to love. And there is only one kind of killing in the name of God for the Christian that I see in the New Testament. It is killing of your own sinful flesh. You want to kill something in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, kill our flesh for the last for political drama. Our hunger and thirst to get in and have a say on what should happen. If you want to kill something in God's name, kill that. Because Romans 8 says that in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I put to death the deeds of the flesh and so I live. But if I live by the flesh, I will die. You think that only applies to sex and lust and all, uh, uh, and, and like all, those, you know, all those typical vices and it has nothing to do with our attitudes towards our neighbours? No! No, Jesus explicitly told us how we are to treat our neighbour. Even if the neighbour is a, a, a foreigner or a cross-cultural, or if our neighbour is votes differently from us, thinks differently from us, believes differently from us, has a different God from us, 
And Jesus gave us the parable of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. And he taught us, like, who's the neighbor here? Right? You love your neighbor. That's the Jesus ethic. The only killing in the name of God is if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross or her cross daily, come after me, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his or her life for the sake of Jesus will save it. Church, the promise of opposition is already there. The call that in the opposition we have been taught the need for us to have our hearts oriented correctly is super important, especially in these days. Now I want to move on. I want to share with you that in the teaching, we are ready for that. And in Paul's trials, now you're going to have trials of your own. Let's not be mistaken. In Paul's trials, he is constantly probing looking, searching for an opportunity to do according to God's ways and to do according to God's will. As a, Paul is so, he's drinking from God's well, he's constantly in God's purposes, he's constantly in God's heart and every opportunity he has, he's looking, he's trying, he's testing, he's not passive. I want you to see, you will see from all the five trials that Paul is not passive like, oh, you know, um, Right? You just like sit back and like, oh, whatever God wills, I'm just going to show up with my pre-prepared script, you know, that I wrote two weeks ago and at every trial, he's going to come out and he's going to read the same thing. No, you're going to see Paul contextualizing everything he says. His whole story, you know, is going to be contextualized according to what's going on. Opportunity for what? Two things. One, he's constantly looking for a chance to testify about Jesus Christ. He's testifying about Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and today, because of His death and resurrection, He is Israel's Messiah, and He is the Saviour of the world. That's one. And that's called gospel. This can be summarised with one word. It is the evangelion, the gospel, the gospeling, right? Now, the second thing, He is constantly looking for opportunities to be sent as far as possible. Just keep taking me from place to place. I don't care. I don't mind. Why? Because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the one who lives and the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave His life for me. So my life is no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. Send me wherever you go. I will go because I belong to you. You ask me to go, I go. That's Paul. He's constantly probing for these two things, to gospelize and to go, right? Now, if you were with us from the start of the year when we began the book of Acts, you would have heard me share that the book of Acts has always got an outward trajectory, right? And I've dramatised that slide a little bit. It's like at the end of chapter 7, and when Stephen is stoned to death, and at the start of chapter 8, this is by chapters, by the way, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. At the end of 7, when, when Stephen is stoned to death, start of 8, 8 verse 1, right? The cause of the persecution, the disciples were 
flung out. So there is an explosive power from Jerusalem out from into Samaria and Damascus, Syria, and we've been. This is our whole year of study, right? Where they go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria until the ends of the world. Acts one eight, Acts eight verse one. They actually start being flung out. And it's not like they say, oh yeah, let's plan this now, let's go. No, it's because of persecution they are forced to go. And so they go. And now they are going everywhere. That's one of the things Paul is looking for. How does Paul take his opportunities to keep advancing the narrative of being flung out to the far parts of the world? Because eventually he's going to get to Rome. Okay? How does he advance that narrative? With each trial, he's seeking and he's trying. He's not passive. He's trying everything possible. Let me show you. In the first trial, he stands before the Jewish crowd. Now, the reason why I want to share this with you is because as Christians, you've been given the mind of Christ. As Christians, you've been given the Holy Spirit. So, as Christians, none of us should be dum-dum, you know, when we show up in this world, right? Okay? As Christians, we should use the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives us to respond in every situation. Paul is standing before a Jewish crowd, being accused of not being Jewish enough. Okay? And so what he does is, he asks for permission from the Roman tribune to speak to them. Right? The crowd is still like, Arr! and Paul starts speaking to them in the Hebrew language. So he's speaking to them in their mother tongue. And then there's a hush. Because suddenly they all realize that, oh, he's like one of us. Let's listen to what he has to say. And so he starts sharing. Now, does it work? It works up to a certain point, right? Because they are wrapped in attention. Because this is Paul speaking in the Hebrew language, speaking about their forefathers and their, and their Jewish scriptures and everything. Eventually though, he mentions the word Gentiles. He says that God has sent me now to the Gentiles. Wow, they triggered, maximum triggered. They heard Gentiles, they're like, that's you, that's you. you you're a turncoat, you're not really Jewish. And then, boom, right? But for that brief period, when Paul stands before them, he doesn't do just a pre-prepared speech. He's, he's working under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to show you this. Jesus had already told them this would happen. He says that when you bring, when they bring you before the synagogues, and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious. How many of you feel very anxious when you stand before big shots? Right? You're like, Ugh. like your boss, your boss's boss, the, the you know, chairman of the board, you know, you're standing before your 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 potential investors or the YB or you the to Dalat Tanku, and then you've got to like you know stand before some royal royalty. You're like, oh no. What will I say? What will I do? Am I going to make a fool of myself? Jesus says to Paul, in this case, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you would say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. On some level, this is a case of Burani Krana Bena. Okay? Because these guys have done right. These guys are walking by God. Holy Spirit is going to give them the words to say. So when Paul is standing before the Jewish mob, he decides to go in Hebrew. Now, a very interesting switch in strategy, okay? Once the mob is dismissed and he has the Sanhedrin around in front of him, he realizes that in this crowd, there are 
half Sadducees, half Pharisees. Now you're like, what's the difference? Huh? Okay, let me tell you the difference. Okay, The Sadducees are the older establishment. Okay, you could think of them as the conservatives. Okay, okay, that they are the older establishment, and they do not subscribe to the idea of a resurrection. Okay, okay. Now the Pharisees are the young, younger, hot bloods and the hot heads. Okay, and they are the ones who believe that that you are not just holy when you're in the temple. You should your lifestyle should be holy everywhere. Okay, that's why they went and started chasing all the Jewish people to keep to the holiness laws even outside in the public square. Whereas the Sadducees believe that you got to go temple worship. Temple worship is the most important thing. You'll go there because that's a holy place, right? So they have different views. And the Pharisees believe in resurrection. So Paul in that moment realizes that I recognize these guys, Sadducees. I recognize these guys, Pharisees. Right? He says that, guys, I'm here today on trial over the issue of the resurrection of one man. What do you think happens to the crowd? Pharisees go, yeah! Sadducees go, no! And before Paul knows it, his little defense there has triggered that crowd in front of him to fight among themselves. So Paul is standing there and the tribune is probably standing there. And you, want to know one, you need to know one thing about Roman, Roman authorities. They have only one goal. Keep the peace. Pax Romana, right? Keep Rome peaceful at all costs. If you need to use the sword to keep Rome peaceful, you do it. But no rioting in Rome or anywhere in Roman territory. So here these guys are fighting. Paul if I can dramatize it a bit, it's probably looking at the tribune going like, you see? <laughs> you see? <laughs> this, is, this is exactly my point. These guys are the ones who are rioting, not me. They can't even, they can't even keep the peace among us. I mentioned one word, it's because of resurrection. And these guys, they're like giving a sideways look, tribune's probably going like, right? What can I do? And so, they can't continue. The crowd is in, is in chaos. Adjourn, adjourn this whole thing, right? And then they go to the next trial. At the next trial, Paul is standing before Felix, a Roman governor, high-ranking Roman governor. His strategy is not, he's not going to go like, it's because of the resurrection, nobody's going to fight, nothing's going to happen. Instead, he starts speaking about his way, the way of the Christians, why he, his, his people are being persecuted as, look, we are just Jews. We are just ordinary Jews who believe in the fulfillment of, our, of the God of our fathers, the promises of our own scriptures coming to, to you know, um, uh, fulfillment in Christ. And it's just that they and I don't agree on exactly how it's being fulfilled. And, and you, you've seen this before with Gaio, right? In uh, um, the other Roman uh, uh, politician who listened to their case and then like, put out like, look, this is an internal Jewish matter. Go settle it among yourselves, right? And so this has happened before, right? So there's precedent. Now, Felix is standing there thinking, this is just an internal Jewish problem, right? This, is not, this does not involve me. And then Paul says, look, if anyone should be arrested for rioting, it is those guys who accused me and brought me here, right? Frankly, this is just a Jewish problem. And, uh, and Felix adjourns the case, right? He said, okay, look, there's no case, you know, but stay, stay in the barracks, you know? Um, and, and then Felix, that's, the, that's what Felix does, like, you know? He, he calls, summons him because he's looking for a okay? But you see what Paul is doing. With each 
opportunity. He's trying not just to share the gospel, he's trying to see what God is asking him to do. He's being sensitive to the leading and the directing of the Spirit for each scenario. Now, I'm going to bring this before you. You are going to go into different scenarios, standing before different crowds, presenting work things before different people, and I think you know that you've got to contextualize, but I want you to know to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit for every situation. Now, I want to simplify this to evangelism. If you were sharing the gospel with five different people, would you share it in exactly the same way? If one of them, you know, is, you know, an atheist, right, um, does not believe in God, you share it, what stories would you share from your life? If you are sharing it with your Hindu friend, it's Deepavali today, you know, like tomorrow you find yourself, you know, you know with an opportunity, would you share it in, you know, doing a comparative religion thing? Maybe not, you know, maybe you just want to share love. I don't know, right? Holy Spirit will tell you what to share at that moment, right? Now, this applies to every single one of us. The sensitivity to the nudging of the Spirit to contextualize what we do and how we share and how we are with the Gospel everywhere we go. Before Festus, Paul is so sensitive that the moment he gets the opportunity to appeal, he grabs it, right? He appeals uh, uh, before Caesar, if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, if he was dull in his thinking and not really sensitive, not sharp, he'll just listen, law, okay, law, whatever, law, right? And then the case will end and he'll be rotting away in Caesarea for another, I don't know how many years, right? But because he's constantly probing, right, he's watching, he's vigilant, when the time comes, he can pounce. And he pounces one more time. When Agrippa and Bernice come and listen, these are Jewish kings, but they're not living right, righteously under Jewish ways, okay? okay? Now, I don't know if elsewhere in the world, in different times in, in history, you have royal families who are, you know, don't really live according to their religious ways, one, but these guys were, okay? These guys were, that kind one. Now, what happened was, while, while they were there, you know, Paul turns his whole case into an evangelism cause, right? He shares about his road to Damascus story. He says, I was a Jew, just like you, you know? I was persecuting the way, you know? I was doing all these things. And then the, the Messiah met me, and he said to me all these things. He starts sharing the gospel in a contextualized way now for a Jewish official. So he's gone from speaking to a Jewish mob, speaking to religious leaders in the Jewish community, two Roman governors, and now a Jewish politician. Right? And in every new case, he finds a different angle to bring it and he shares the gospel. He actually says right, to, to Agrippa, I would that you become a Christian just like me. Agrippa is like, Ooh, you so fast tried to convert me. Right? And then Paul says, I wish that you would be just like me except for these chains. You would be just like me. Right? And he's constantly probing. Now I'm going to ask you, why is he constantly probing? What's driving Paul? Okay, I want to show you this. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, right? He will bear witness about me. Firstly, who's on trial? It sounds like Paul's on trial. Paul's not the one on trial. Because the helper is the one who witnesses for God. The Holy Spirit is on trial. So when all these people bring the Christians up, to try them 
before judges, the Holy Spirit is the one who is on trial and the Holy Spirit will vindicate. He speaks how He speaks, when He speaks, with whatever strategy He will use according to each scenario. Next question, why is Paul so opportunistic? Why is he so opportunistic? It's because he is driven by purpose. He knows what he needs to do. He knows where he needs to go. And because he's so driven by one singular purpose, he's constantly looking for opportunities on what to do next. You see, my friends, in these six chapters, you see that whatever opposition they face has already been pre-taught to them. You see that in whatever trials that they and you will face, you're constantly looking for an opportunity to share gospel and to fulfill purpose, fulfill purpose. I'm going to ask you, do you have a strong purpose? Do you have a strong why in your life? Do you have a strong drive in your life? Is there something? Because God has rescued you. He's given you a purpose. Do you know it? Can you seek it? I want to encourage you to seek it. But as you seek it, as you try to know it, you're going to go through ups and you're going to go through some downs. And in the trouble, I want you to know that God is the one who makes the overture for you. He comes to you. He makes the move to find you. God takes the initiative to find you. That's why we sing songs like, Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Right? Your faithfulness. Right? I'm still in your hands. Right? This is my confidence. You've never failed me. Right? My friends, God comes when you are lost, when you are down, when you are in your prisons, when you are in your dark pit, when you are in your crossroad, when you are in your dead end, God makes the overture to find you because His promise still stands. And great is His faithfulness. When everybody thought that Paul should not go to Jerusalem, he sent the prophet Agabus, tie it up and say, I confirm for you, whoever's belt this is, right? When they go to Jerusalem, this is what will happen. Confirms for him exactly what will happen so that Paul will be ready. See, God is with him. God is with him, giving him that. Remember I told you, my word is a lamp unto your feet, right? Now this is an example of my word is a lamp unto your feet because God's word tells Paul what's coming up one step in front of him. You go to Jerusalem, you are going to get arrested. Okay, now I know. Now I'm not going to be blindsided. I go to Jerusalem, clear, I will get arrested. Good, let's go, right? Of course, everyone says, no, please don't go, right? He goes. In the next instance, right? Sorry. This was the one. This is how the Jews will bind you, right? Next one, God speaks to Paul. That night, remember, after the Sanhedrin fights among each other, he brings him to the barracks, right? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Church, take courage courage. In whatever dark pit you are in, take courage. In whatever lostness you are, take courage. Why? For as you have testified to the facts about me here in Jerusalem, so must you testify also in Rome. God is giving him assurance of the end point. Now, not all of you are going to go and testify to God in Rome. Maybe the holiday. Wow, I get to go to Italy. Chun, betul. Yeah. 
look, look, you're gonna, God's gonna send you different places, okay? I don't know where God's gonna send you. I wish he would send me to Italy. I'm quite an Italophile myself, right? But God sent me to Singapore below, right? <laughs> so must you also testify in Rome is for you the end point, whatever is your end point, God is giving you assurance. As you've done here, you will also get to the end. You will get to the end. And so Paul knows now, oh, I won't get killed in Jerusalem. No, you won't get killed in Jerusalem. You will make it to the end. And your end is your end. You will die there, right? You will get killed there. You won't get killed here. Your life will not be shortcut. You will make it there. God is assuring you today. You will make it there. Wherever there is, it's not for me to know, it's not for all, any of us to really be sure about, but wherever you're there is, God has that in mind. And He will not let your life be truncated. Walk with Him. You will not die before your time. I want to speak this life over you today, church. You will not have your life and your destiny truncated before your time. Walk with Him. You will see it through. Amen. If you feel that your life has reached a point where you've reached a dead end, you don't know where you're going to go. You don't know if His promises will come through. I want you to know, your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Amen. You're still in His hands. That's your confidence. Amen. He will see you through. You won't have a short-circuited life. You won't have a cut-short life. You won't have a truncated life. He will carry you all the way to your respective endpoints. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Take courage. Church, can the Lord minister courage to you right now? Father, I pray that you minister courage to every single one of my sisters and brothers for a time like this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? We are ending very, very soon. There is a plot to kill Paul. That plot fails. You want to know how that plot fails? It can only be God that that plot fails. Outside the barracks, while God is with Paul, there are 40 Jewish zealots who have made a vow that they will not eat or drink until they ambush and assassinate Paul. They are planning the next day to go to the Roman officials and say, bring him out la, one more time, one more trial. But they have already got it in plan. When they are bringing him out in transit, they're going to ambush and kill him. So that's their plan. They can vow, not going to eat, not going to drink until this man is dead. Who discovers and overhears this? Paul's sister's son. We don't even know, we don't even know Paul's sister. Paul has a sister, and her sister has a son, and her son is in Jerusalem at this time. But maybe Jerusalem is a bit like KL, everybody has a relative somewhere in KL, right? Paul's nephew hears the plot. Comes to, goes to Paul, tells Paul. Paul says, tell the, tell the centurion. So he tells the centurion. Centurion hears the whole story and immediately prepares a 470-man escort. 200 foot soldiers, 270 riders on horseback, 200 spearmen. And then they, at 9 o'clock at night, they escort Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea Philippi. In other words, this man's not going to die. This man's not going to have his life cut short. 
this man's life is going to see its way all the way through there. And who's orchestrating this? You think it's just Paul's nephew orchestrating this? You think it's just a centurion orchestrating this? God is orchestrating this. And if you think this is miraculous, this miracle can be true in your life. Only, as I said, walk with God. Be loyal and faithful to Him. Bend your knee. Make Him your greatest allegiance. Don't make all those other things your allegiance. Remember Him. Know your Father. Know His heart. Walk with Him. And He will see you through till the end. Amen? And then He says this, I have said these things to you, says Jesus, that in me, you will have peace. Church, whatever struggles, whatever concerns, whatever anxieties you may have, in Christ, you have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. In Paul's world, he had tribulations. Every city, tribulation. In our world today, there is tribulation. Not just elsewhere in this world. Right here in Malaysia, there are proxies setting up proxy war of ideas. And we have tribulation on our doorstep too. If anything is to go by, if the typical way of the world is to go, it will only intensify. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, see? Take courage, take heart. Why? Because Jesus has overcome all of this. All of this warring, all of this tribulation, centurions and Pharisees and Sadducees fighting each other, angry mobs or whatever it is you see today in this world of people fighting with people, cousins fighting cousins, brothers fighting brothers, whatever it looks like, Jesus has overcome it all. So walk with Him. His promise still stands and make that your confidence and behold, says Jesus, I am with you always till the end of your days. Can I have the worship team on stage? Church, the reason why this is so important for us to get right is because we live, we live in a world that demands for our loyalty. The world expects us to show loyalty according to how they show loyalty. The world expects us to take sides the way the world itself is a side-taking world. And the way of God calls us to take sides differently. Take the side of love. Take the side of compassion. Take the side of your neighbour, your neighbour's well-being. Can you dress the wounds of your neighbour after a fight, after they fight with you? Jesus says, take their side of love, of compassion, of kindness, of goodness, of peace. He says, take the side of patience. Take the side of faithfulness. He says, take the side of self-control. Gosh, it's so hard in the world today to have self-control. The moment you don't have self-control, you want to bomb your neighbour to smithereens. Jesus says, the Spirit's fruit is gentleness and self-control. 
we are going to be a different type of people in this day. We are going to take a different kind of side in this day because we are not saved to become political animals. We are not saved to kill in the name of God. We are saved to love others, even unto our own death. Amen? That's what sets the Christian church apart. And if any one of you walked in here thinking Christians are bigots, Christians are angry, Christians are, are, are only love one side, hate the other side, whatever, whatever it is, may that be dispelled today. Christians are called to take the side of loving others even unto their own death. But the promise still stands. He's faithful to every one of you. Let's rise. Let's rise and let's worship. I want this to be your time. Your time with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to step off the stage so that you don't get distracted. This is your time to worship with God. Sarah, why don't you lead us in worship? Lord Jesus, we've seen you show up for Paul of Tarsus, one man in your kingdom, carrying his cross daily. Father, we've seen you do it in the lives of our forefathers. We've seen you do it in the lives of the early missionaries who came and, and brought your word to our own forefathers. We've seen you do it to other Christians. But today, we're going to see you do it again. We're going to see you do it in every single one of our lives. So church, I want to pray over you and we will close. Lord Jesus, I pray for every single one of my sisters and brothers here today that you will give them the assurance that you are with them. That your word that says that surely I am with you until the very end, the very end of the age. Lord Jesus, you will be with us until the very end. And whatever miracle we've seen, whatever breakthrough we've seen, whatever way in which we've seen you come through for a man like Paul, Lord Jesus, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we want to see you do it again in our lives as we carry our cross, as we walk in faith, as we follow you all the days of our lives. Amen, we want to see you do it again in my situation, in my breakthrough I'm looking for, in the dead end that I'm facing. Do it again, oh Jesus. So Father, I pray for supernatural breaking open from dead ends to new life and new roads will open in the name of Jesus Christ. And deadness will come to life so that, so that dry bones will come back alive again. So that brokenness will be healed. So that every situation that looks like it is finished will have a new beginning. And the Lord has appointed and is appointing for you every moment right now. He is speaking over you fresh starts and new wine. He is pouring out upon us today. Receive the opening of new life and newness over you. And wherever you go, streams of living water will flow and you will nourish the world that is dry, broken, barren and hurting. You will be a blessing unto the world. And the leaves from the trees that you leave behind will go toward the healing of the nations. 
receive this church receive this now may the Lord bless you may the Lord keep you may the Lord turn his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord lift up his countenance over you and give you peace and all of God's people say amen amen all of God's people say amen. turn to someone say amen